Hello, or bonjour. This is Thomas Chatterton Williams, your host for Americans in Paris, a podcast of the American Scholar. We're coming to you from the American Library in Paris, which along with the Phi Beta Kappa Society is sponsoring this episode. Today I'm speaking with Lindsay Tramuta, the author of the best-selling The New Paris, and a regular contributor to the New York Times, Condé Nast Traveler, Afar, and Fortune magazine. Her new book, The New Parisienne, The Women and Ideas Shaping Paris, will be released by Abrams on July 7th, 2020. Lindsay, hi, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You're from Philly. <laughs> Long way from home. <laughs> Um, that's a loaded question. What, you know, why am I here? Um, I studied French literature and linguistics at Temple University, and it was like a small family. And I knew that at some point I needed to come over here and actually apply what I was learning in some way. And so I had the opportunity to do that. And, you know, I credit the instruction I had at Temple with like really getting me prepared for that experience. And we were reading a lot of, you know, some of the more most expected classics, you know, from Baudelaire and Flaubert and Alfred de Musset, but we were also reading Caribbean authors. Uh-huh. And, you know, later in my in my degree, it was a lot of, you know, Francophonie as well. And so, I don't know, I just felt like very prepared to take everything I was learning and sort of the vocabulary and then like tr- try things out in a real life situation. So... So That's unlike right. me, you came here like fully formed as a French-speaking expat. You were ready. I was arrived. ready, although I will say that classroom French still yeah. there's a there's still a barrier that you like a hurdle you have to get over. And so that first summer I came, I was it was like, oh wow, I don't really think I should be talking the way that I was <laughs> reading um, because people look at you like. Um, when you're actually here, they say la for EC. Uh, oh, they don't th- teach you that in school. Oh, no. I mean, that's that's even a, like a very specific yeah. example. But just in terms of like the sophistication of language, you know, they, no one speaks that way. Right. So it, that was a bit of a hurdle. But, um, you know, what better way to learn than throwing yeah. yourself into the deep end, basically. And did you uh, intuit or anticipate that you would be moving permanently when you arrived or... It just happened. It just kind of happened that way, although I will say I didn't feel like I belonged in the States for whatever reason. And I think like people who end up spending time abroad feel like they're, they were maybe running from something. No, I don't have anything in particular I was running from, but I do think that, um, I don't know, there was something clearly amiss in my, my sense of self in the U.S. And so that seemed to fall into place once I got here and over the years. So, yeah, yeah, I just let life sort of dictate where I was going to go. And that meant really doubling down on life in France. And so then what did you do when you arrived? How did you make it work? School, more school. Uh Because, you know, now I get the sense that you can be a whole number of things. And there are different visas that exist that allow you to sort of be the, you know, entrepreneur or you know, freelancer with certain certain flexibility, but I was so young and I was still figuring out what my career was going to be that I didn't really have that luxury. I didn't have, you know, I wasn't building a business. I wasn't, um, you know, coming with 10 years of work experience to sort of do things on my own. So, you know, I, I, finished, I finished undergrad and then tried to get a job, like a normal job here, like an entry-level job. And you know, the common the common expectation is that people who are applying for the working world here have already done their internship that is like the equivalent of an entry-level position in the U.S., and I didn't have that. 
So ultimately, like after much hemming and hawing, I decided to go back to school because at least that would not only extend my time, um, but incorporate some sort of a professional experience. So I went to the American University of Paris and I studied global communication and I spent six months interning in a in a design and branding agency that allowed me to sort of say like, okay, I've now worked in France for six months. Um, and so once that experience was over, I, I could, you know, sort of be on par with other French students my age, mm-hmm. looking for jobs and, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do. Although this was during the economic crisis. So <laughs> I don't know if we should say which one, because, you know, it seems like it's this just is an ongoing just an catastrophe. On- <laughs> right. Um, and so that now you've kind of, it's been a few years since the new Paris came out yep. and, um, and, and you've got this kind of project. I see these as part of the same project. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and, I'm, and I'm intrigued by the concept because Paris is the most visited city in the world, and many of us carry our own kind of idea of what it is and what this geography holds and represents. And, and so I, why did you feel the need, or why was it necessary to um, offer a reconceptualization of Paris or, or, or to revise what our understanding is? Because I, I felt like it was being treated like any other brand, which is that you know there's a certain heritage behind brands and that's something quite valuable and there's plenty of reasons to uphold that and and nurture it but it was this the story around Paris the brand was leaving out a whole a whole other side to it you know the the sort of very cosmopolitan spirit the the very sort of social mixing that goes on the very uh sort of modern and innovative side to the city that we tend or at least in, in most books, modern books, tend to overlook. And it just felt like there was an incomplete story. Um, and also when you see, you know, as someone who writes for, for the media, um, you're, you pay attention to how Paris is portrayed in, store, in, you know, in magazine articles and in newspapers. And it just felt like the same themes were, were coming up time and again. And I was like, I live here and there is like 90% more to what the experience is like than what we're being told. And so I felt like if, if, you know, people are coming and are going to keep returning to Paris, then maybe it's worth exploring what that story is and also how the city is changing, because there's a lot of discussion about how Paris is change phobic, like much of the country, and how, you know, just how much there's like this attachment or or burden by, by that sort of weighty past. Yeah. And without any sort of exploration of how it's actually moving forward. The burden is a good way of putting it like um it's not like rome but in many ways it, it, it's it, there's a museum oh, aspect sure. to paris that, uh, that many people want they want it to feel exactly like they remembered it when they studied abroad here 20 years ago when they come back but i feel like a lot of that still endures like mm-hmm. it's not that that's disappeared um and what's really interesting about this moment in particular is without the tourists it feels like we're finally living in our own version of the museum mm-hmm. city you know um but that's so limiting. Yeah. As a global capital, as a as a very important city in terms of business and and what comes out of here and what's produced here, I think it's extremely limiting. And likewise for 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 the women who inhabit it, you you saw. It's really interesting how you link the projects. You saw. Um, I I want to read from a quote early in the book. Um, a woman makes this interesting point. A woman's appearance is part of the country's source of national pride, and therefore her body belongs to the national gaze. I I thought that was really fascinating. Can you expand on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's this idea that um, throughout history, you've had, you know, certain symbols of, of sort of what France is and its identity. And often that's been represented by women. So you think of the Marianne, you know, and her sort of exposed body um, and the different iterations she's taken. So she's mostly been, you know, a white woman. Um, Inès de la Fressange, you know, the, the, the model and uh, author, if we can call her that, and fashion designer, has, has at one point represented her. And I Leticia think... Leticia Casta as well. That's right. Forgot about that one. Never forget. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, these are, these are um, women with a very certain, a very certain type of appeal um, and who perpetuate this, you know, exposed, you know, very, very sensual figure. But it's, you know, little more than that. And so when we think about the women who continue to sort of um, reflect the archetype, you know, it's as Alice Pfeiffer, another author said, it's like the May 1968 body. The woman mm. who was, you know, taking to the streets and protesting, it's like um, uh, Jane Birkin, who is British, but who has come to sort of embody mm. the same types of ideals, this sort of bohemian, rebellious. Super slim. Super slim, <laughs> white, heterosexual, and also like heavily sexualized being. Mm -hmm. And so the reason that doesn't change and the reason it's been sort of protected for so long is in some respects because that's what is convenient to the overall narrative. And it's something that, I mean, the world does want that narrative. The world outside of, it's not just French men and women who consume that narrative. That oh, thing no, really right. exports. Well, and that's that, yeah. that was my point of frustration, was like if I read one more story talking about how French women, regardless of the fact that the Parisian woman is very different from the French woman. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't take a woman from, I don't know, right. La, La Dordogne and, and assume that she has the same qualities as a Parisian woman. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of why we read these articles time and time and again of, you know, she does everything better. She can, you know, tie a scarf better. She can put her makeup on she better. She does. Fat. She doesn't get fat, which is so untrue. But that her is, kids are well behaved. <laughs> oh yeah, they, they, everything is picture perfect, and it really uh, sort of um, pulls in the incessantly imperfect foreign woman, right? Who has to look to someone else and to mm -hmm. something else to sort of get her to, to to sort of get her on the path of self of betterment of self betterment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a real problem. Mm -hmm. um, and as a woman, I don't want to read that kind of stuff. And as a woman who re who lives here, I'm like, wow, this is. This is a narrow, narrow, narrow view of what, A, a woman should or can be, and B, who the women here actually are. Yeah. And so, so it's problematic both for the women who live here and for us, who, mm -hmm. you know, Who compare us. yourselves to this ideal oh, that's yeah. not even what the women no. in the city actually are living. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, so this, like, take me through your process. You interviewed dozens of women for this oh. book. How did you, how, how long did that take? How did you select your subjects? It's a fascinating approach. It's it's very time consuming. I imagine. Oh yeah. my God. Well, you, I mean, you it's write like a ton of magazine profiles. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So you, you imagine how much time you're spending in the organization and planning like, okay, we'll be available on this day for how long. And then yeah. you show up and there's always something that goes awry. Um, I spoke to over four, more than 40 women. I'd say actually it was closer to 50 when you count the women who, you know, are part of the essay, mm -hmm. sort of the, um, separate sections. Um, and some of them I knew, um, some of them were sort of part of an extended network. Other women I had been following online, reading their work or, or you know, sort of just aware of their contributions to the city. And others were recommended by either my friends or 
additional women I interviewed. So, you know, they'd say, ah, if you're looking for more, you know, personalities in this industry, you know, I have Mm -hmm. a a few recommendations. And so it really came together quite well in that sense. And obviously I could have kept, I could have gone on forever. I mean, the thing is, is I could have tried to find women in even more industries, Mm -hmm. but at a certain point you have to you have to cap it. Um, and it was to say this is a sampling and not all of them are super well known. And I think that's what I, I mean, I hope that's what people really enjoy is getting to see sort of like someone who's in aviation who is, you know, definitely behind the scenes in a lot of ways, but is still holding a position that's extremely important, you know, both for the country, given, you know, the company she works for, but also just the, you know, the the ability for women to reach high leadership roles in in fields like that. So it's both to show like, you know, hopefully they'll be interested in, in just the variety of women that are in there. And so you, there's, you get into a new conversation or maybe it's not new to all of the subjects in your book, but it's new to some French people to probably a lot of French people. And it's new to people who observe France, observe France from afar. Um, in some ways, France is becoming more American in its approach to identity, and or there, there, are, there are voices who would like to move towards an American multicultural kind of understanding. And you, you, you juxtapose multiculturalism in the American style with communitarism. Yeah, got the, the, the uh, ultimate buzzword in France. Yeah. yeah, can you break down the distinction and and the pros and cons and, and who's on what side of this For sure. debate? So I would say almost everyone in the book. Um, well, anybody who identifies as an activist um, would see multiculturalism and the idea that we can, you know, be very hyphenated individuals. We can be American, we and and we can be gay. We can be American and also from, you know, I don't know, South America. We can have these different elements to our to our our lives and our identities, and they sort of make us richer. And that doesn't mean we can't come together as a whole. Um, Whereas in France, the idea of communitarism sort of takes that idea to a degree and says that it's necessarily problematic because it is a threat to the republic. So, because in France because everybody is French, period. Under under yeah, you sort of universalist, soil, po- right? So in, an, in a universalist um, country like France, everyone, regardless of whether they're born in Senegal or you know are Muslim or Jewish or you know have three different passports, you're still French, um, and therefore are equal. The reality, though, is that there are discriminations, and many of the people who do have these sort of more hyphenated backgrounds don't feel like they are, you know, French. There's um there's a really wonderful professor, uh, French professor. He's well, he's well, again, this is sort of getting to the problem. He's French and Martinique, and so, you know, how does he identify himself? Both, uh, both ways. Um, Grégory Pierrot, and he wrote this piece for the, the Libé just last week, which was astounding, but I actually qu- I quoted him in the intro because he talks about how it doesn't matter how perfect his French is, how, you know, how much he follows all of the ideals of the Republic, you know, regardless of what he does, there's still someone to sort of wave the, the, the tricolor flag in his face and, you know, sort of make him feel like he'll never be French enough because he's, you know, not, he doesn't fit that very white uh, Christian bourgeois mm-hmm. sort of checkbox. Um, and I do think that there's, you know, I think th- I think the French government is very afraid of of considering what it may mean to be French today because it varies so greatly from what they thought it meant, you know, 100 or 200 years ago. 
even though someone like Graham Rob, uh, Raphael Glucksmann also makes this point, uh, France has always been a nation in ethnic flux and has combined very different peoples together. Um, and, you know, somebody coming from Languedoc is, 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 or Pays Basque is a very different kind of For sure. ethnicity, actually, than someone coming from Breton, who is more closely related to, to an Irishman or an totally. Irish woman. And they've been discriminated, too, I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea that France is this kind of smooth, unified mass has always been a myth. But the idea that France has a universalizing mission is something that France takes very seriously. And it's one of the things that kind of links France and America, that these are nations founded on ideas and principles and not on blood. Right. No, that's very but true. that's the theory, right? The, in practice... It works um, a lot differently. Yeah. And so, you know, when you have... Uh, you know, the movement for the anti-racist movement, for example, mm -hmm. right now, um, you know, Macron was qu in, in one of his recent addresses said that they were, um, you know, sort of the people who were demonstrating in these collective groups are separatists and they're trying to divide the republic. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a, you know, me personally, I think that's a very um, unfortunate place to be because it, it sort of makes the people who do feel an injustice that they are not taken seriously. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, you have this ideal, which is great in theory, but how do you get to a place where people can be heard and you're still, you know, working toward this goal of making sure that everybody's equal? Right. So unfortunately, the word communitariste comes up all the time as soon as you have like anyone you know, gathering and marching for their own rights, you know? Right. The, the sort of, well, we're... To, to give you another example, it's like, you know, in the U.S., you grow up in, and you hear people talk about the Jewish community, the the gay community. And here, the idea of calling that a community is already problematic. Yeah, it's, it's antithetical to the Republican ideal. Right. So, so even those, the way gathering among like-minded people or like, or people with similar backgrounds is already framed differently than it would be in the U.S. Right, right. And so even beyond the political kind of discussions that are very fascinating that you uh, raise in this book, I wonder, like, just you spoke to so many fascinating, beautiful, interesting women. Uh, were any particularly memorable? Or, 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 or I don't mean to make you choose among your, <laughs> <laughs> your darlings. I'm, but. I'm obsessed with all of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think... Um, I was I was particularly blown away by the work of um, Dr. Hada Hatem Ganser, who's an OBGYN and who founded La Maison des Femmes in Saint Denis. Mm -hmm. And I included Saint Denis because it's part of this goal of making Paris Greater Paris, or mm -hmm. like incorporating those areas. And it really is just over the périph, right? Mm -hmm. um, and what was astounding to me is how, when, when I mean knowing what some of these women have been through, the ones who show up on her door and have, you know, either they've suffered from, you know, female excision or they've been, you know, abused or raped in, from someone in their family. And we're talking about people who live just over mm -hmm. the border to what's considered the heart of Paris. Um, women who, you know, are uh, have never seen a doctor and are pregnant and are not, you know, almost to nine months and need need support, you know, and she she did tell me a couple of very terrifying stories and I, and it just made me realize that the the amount of time that she's devoting quite altruistically i mean this this is a project that she's basically funding herself i mean she's raising funds through private donors um but she doesn't have the the real support of the hospital that this center is attached to um so you know trying to keep this going when 
there's clearly a great need. Um, I was just bowled over by sort of that that commitment to this greater good and helping women who otherwise would be sort of left to 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 wither away. Yeah. I mean, and and are and are afraid to ask for help. And in some cases, you know, the fact that during confinement, I'm sure you read these figures that like yeah. uh, domestic abuse went up 26 percent or 36 percent. Um, and those women need a place to go. And so often, even in abusive situations in normal times, so not just during confinement, if they can manage to sort of break away and get to La Maison des Femmes, you know, they have individuals who can, who are there part of the staff and who can protect them and who can get them, you know, help and bring in the police if necessary or other legal figures, you know. So there's, it's sort of like a, a an entry point to getting broader help. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. Women who are doing things, you know, okay, she started her career in maternity and, you know, doing more traditional OBGYN work, but we need women like her to sort of offer the services that aren't being offered elsewhere. Yeah. So that's a, that's one of the deeply inspirational stories. Yeah. And then some are fun, some are lighter. Some yeah, of course. You really run the gamut and have a range of, of women represented here. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a teacher who um, has been teaching high school students for, I don't know, 20 years or, no, she's too young to be teaching for 20 years, but in any case, for a number of years. And, you know, I wanted to talk to her about the education system because we know that that's very much a sort of troubled point in France. There's been a lot of demonstrations among teachers, but not just to say like, okay, let's talk about the, the, the ills of the education system, but actually how have you spun your love of literature outside of the classroom and she created a, an app that was called un texte un jour mm-hmm. um with her mom several years ago and it's had several iterations since but it's basically trying to create a very sort of dynamic way to learn classical works um and pulling excerpts and and, and phrases and different words and making it sort of like your your word of the day or your mm-hmm. you know your piece of the day um and that did super well and actually she thought it was going to be just for sort of pedagogic use and in the end it was you know like adults between 30 and 55 years old who were downloading it and you know kind of like you used to have those calendars you know the word of the day calendars mm-hmm. you know ad- adults would you don't have to be a teacher or be in education to, you know, buy those things. So I think, I, th- I think that was a very interesting way to apply her love of literature, in a different way. Um, and it also meant we were talking about something other than just sort of like, what's the problem in education right yeah, now? Yeah. You know. So there's, there's that, and then there's an architect who got to work on the the Hotel du Crillon, the mm-hmm. storied hotel at the Place de la Concorde, and you know, did the re the overhaul of uh, the Jules Verne restaurant in the Eiffel Tower, and she's a Lebanese woman, like. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about reshaping the um, sort of what these icons look like and and not only giving it to a woman. And there are very few female architects of sort of uh, high standing or that with name recognition, um, but also a woman who has spent her life going between Beirut and Paris. Like, you know, you bring something else to the table by nature of, you know, what the experience you grew up in. And, you know, she grew up in the war and, you know, hearing bombs fall around her, you know. So I just think that is such an interesting um, story to dig into, even mm-hmm. if it's just, you know, something quick, but allows people to, to sort of get a sense of, like, it's not the usual suspects who are behind everything that's cool happening right. in Paris. That's right, yeah. I'm, I'm just, like, looking at your book in front of me, and I can't emphasize enough, like, your books are beautiful, and they're obviously, like, um, really engagingly written, but they're so beautiful and engagingly written that you have like a massive social media following. 
No, you do. I mean, <laughs> ever since I met you, we talk about <laughs> you, this. It's you so really funny. like you, you're you're out there doing your thing, and like, how do you combine these two? practices into a into a cohesive whole for like for for people who are writing for other people who are thinking about this like how do you because I think that nowadays it is very important to actually you you hit people through text but you have a lot of different ways that you communicate a vision or ideas and you seem to do that very well and you have a podcast how do you integrate all these things well I think it 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 took a long time to get to that point I mean it really started with a website you know, in 2009 when I was like oh I don't know what I'm doing with my life I'm just gonna start telling stories and then it spun into something much bigger. So I think the idea was not, you know, spreading myself too thin, but with the first book, that really allowed me to say, okay, is this who I'm going to be? Is this the the type of narrative I'm going to be working on, you know, versus, you know, someone who might still throw in the, you know, like best terrace coffee shops to sit at, you know, like, you know, the, the, you know, there's a, there are different types of writing and there are different types of stories. And so the first book sort of allowed me to figure out, okay, this is how I make it part of a, a whole. So whether it's, you know, also leading sort of walking and tasting tours that are inspired by the f- first book, which I had started doing, and then now COVID has mm. you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. dried up all the tourists, but um, really trying to diversify the points of entry, because I think part of that comes from a fear of like, you know, where your revenue comes from as someone who's a freelancer in this world. And if you put your eggs in one basket, that starts to get very scary. Um, so, you know, writing for the media is one thing, having books is another, um, but all trying to, everything I do should really fit my values, which is mm-hmm. that I want to tell stories that are not, you know, like what we've read before. Um, and maybe that will lead to me diving into some much more personal work in the future. But the idea being that it still reflects this kind of Paris, this this more realistic Paris. Um, and so the podcast is great because it allows me to continue conversations that I, you know, couldn't have for the with the first book or with the second one. Um, and shout it out. It's the same name, The New Paris? The New Paris podcast. So that's not going to change. Um, and, I, and I like that actually because it means I can go in a lot of different areas. You know, you came on and we talked about race and identity linked to your book. I've talked about immigration policies, but I've also talked about like, the trend of breakfast in Paris and like who are the people who are like trying to get some things going in the food scene. Um, so it it allows me a lot of flexibility to cover a multitude of topics. And actually the feedback I've gotten from listeners is that they really like that because mm-hmm. there is levity, but then there are also some of the serious topics that they feel like no other Paris-based podcast is going to cover. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows me also like people like you who are doing really important work in other areas but still can speak to the experience of living here. I think having those voices on builds the story out even, you know, more broadly. And that's what I want to do. I want to make sure that we're, whatever I'm doing is I'm painting this picture of Paris Mm -hmm. that is, and and the country at large too. I mean, obviously, you know, talking about immigration doesn't just pertain to Paris, but um, that it's all part of the same goal. And so along that line, then, are the brothers going to get something? Are we going to get broken off with a new Parisian? <laughs> I think for I think men are going to be moved to the background for a little bit. Um, not for not forever. I see it as a trilogy. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I could I guess talk about men, although maybe a man should. I don't know. I mean, I feel like the the Parisian man he's got more facial hair than he used to. He's changing oh in God. other ways too. You know. I mean, look at the prime minister. <laughs> yeah. Talk about embracing facial hair. I think well, I, I'm going to advocate behind the scenes for the new Parisian. All right. Well, maybe that's something, uh, maybe we could co-create that. I don't know. But there's a lot of, you're right. There, there's a lot of interesting 
ways to break down these stereotypes and certainly Parisian men you know have their own I just don't think it's as marketed and branded as the <laughs> Parisian woman, but... No, she exists as a kind of idea. I, I don't know when I became acquainted. It's like maybe Mireille. Did you take oh, French yeah. in action? Oh, of course. This kind of, that was very early on incepted in my mind. By the time that I read like Bonjour Tristesse, I already understood exactly what, you know, there, you're absolutely right. There's a kind of, there's a, um, a Parisian jeune fille, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and there's also a woman of d- various ages, that's like as a, a type in our mind. Anyway, you're doing really important work. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Thomas, for coming on, Lindsay. Thank you for listening today. The American Library in Paris has served English-speaking readers in Paris and elsewhere since 1920. To read about its programs and events, please visit AmericanLibraryInParis.org. Please check out program notes for this and all our episodes on the AmericanScholar.org backslash podcast. Au revoir. See you next time.